Hey, it's Emery, a youth member here at Normandale. This is the sermon podcast from Normandale Baptist Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We're so glad you found us. I hope this sermon will help you grow in your faith with Jesus. If you've been encouraged by what you hear, we want to invite you to support the ongoing ministry of Normandale. You can do that by going to normandale.org give. Thanks. So open your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, we're going to be in 17, starting in verse 16, going through verse 34. So 17, if you're new to the Bible, uh, it's the big number on the page, and the verse is a small number on the page. If you're looking for Acts, just go to the table of contents. That'll help you find your way there. It's in the New Testament, after the book of John. And so we've been going through a mini-series within a series. It's not really mini, uh, but a series within a series. So we are going through Revelation Uh, And we spent a lot of time in chapter 12, in which we are talking through, really, battling Satan. And uh, there was a verse in verse 11 in chapter 12 in which he talked about the ways that we can battle Satan. And one is why by by believing in the blood of the Lamb, but second is by living by the word of our testimony. And uh, and so we've launched into a separate series on how do you live by the word of your testimony? Like, how do you... Uh, how do you engage in sharing the gospel? How do you engage in pulling people, other people into a relationship with Jesus and like testifying to the grace that God has given us and, and how we can know the living God? And so we've launched into a series about this in order to give practical steps, practical steps that normal Christians, normal people can take in order to share their faith. Because oftentimes, as I've said multiple weeks, when you hear the word evangelism, you tense up and you feel dread over it uh, because you just think, I just can't do that. I can't live in that manner. I can't walk up to the guy at QT and just start trying to tell him about Jesus. And so what I'm trying to do is say, yes, there are people who have been gifted with the gift of evangelism, who have the ability to do that, have the desire to do that, and have results come from things like that. And there are others of us who have not been gifted in that way but still desire to see other people come to know Jesus? How can the normal people engage in evangelism? And so that's what we've been walking through in this series. And so uh, we saw a couple weeks ago on how do you identify who do you share the gospel with? How do you do that? How do you identify what person of all billion, couple billion of people in the world who don't know Jesus, how do you identify which of those you should share the gospel with? And that was our one. And then we saw last week was talking about building trust with that person, Um, because the reality is, is you can have the best message in the world, but if you're sharing it with a person who doesn't trust you, it's going to fall on deaf ears. And uh, and so the third thing we're going to see today is we're going to talk about how do you arouse curiosity within a person? How do you how do you do that? And uh, and so. We're going to be digging into this text because really, here in Acts chapter 17, Paul, we're going to see all this stuff through the lens of Paul evangelizing to the people in Athens in Acts chapter 17. And uh, so this is a really informative passage for us uh, because it's a really great example of how Paul adopted his message or adapted his message to the needs of the people he was speaking to. And, uh, and so uh, to be able to reach them where they were at. And so it's a really great passage for that. And so... Uh, let's start reading. We're going to read verse 16 through 21. We're going to pray, and then we're going to get into it. Also, Mike, if this mic is in the monitors, will you kill it up here? All right, so while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed 
when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worshiped God, as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him. Some said, what, what is this arrogant show-off trying to say? Others replied, he seems to be preaching a preacher of foreign deities because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and said, may we learn about this new teaching you're presenting? Because what you say sounds strange to us, and we want to know what these strange things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. And so, Father, come before you, and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity we have to be here, to open it up. And so I pray that you would use it to speak to us, to speak to our hearts today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so Paul's in Athens here, kind of by chance, really. And so he was in Berea uh, sharing the gospel there, and he got ran out of the city. And so uh, he's come to Athens, and he's waiting in this city on his two buddies, Paul, uh, Timothy, and Silas, to come and join him before they head on, on another missionary journey. And so while he's in this city, he's looking around at all the, the culture, and he sees that the city is filled with idol worship. And, uh, and so this is kind of a, a thing about the culture of Athens, really Greek, uh, Greece uh, as a whole, in that they had a lot of gods. They had a lot of Greek gods. And so if you're familiar with the, the movie Hercules or the, the Disney movie Hercules, you know, and he's got the dad, Zeus, and he's got the, his uncle, who's the, what did the guy, I don't know, over uh, Hades. And uh, so you've got all these Greek gods who do all these different things, have these, have these hands and different aspects of, of life. So you have one, Zeus is kind of the, the head guy, and then you got a guy over death, then you got a guy over uh, like uh, harvest time, those, kind of, those different kinds of gods. Well, that's how the Greeks functioned in that they had idols that represented each of these different deities that they would serve depending on what their particular need was at that time. And, uh, and so Paul is looking around the city, and he sees this, and he's like, on one hand, it's not great because they're serving idols. They're living with an idolatrous heart. On the other hand, there's a good thing happening here in that they have interest in spiritual things, and they're seeking some kind of, of God, right? And uh, so Paul sees this, and he feels pulled, like, hey, these guys need to know about the real God, the living God. And so Paul looks into this, and he's like, okay, well, I'm going to start evangelizing. And so he starts by going to the synagogues to where all the Jews were and starts trying to reason with them about Jesus. And then he goes to the marketplaces. He goes to the HEB or he goes to the Walmart or the, you know, the wherever else where they're at. And he starts trying to talk to people as they're trying to get their tomatoes. And he's like, listen, listen, I got to tell you about the God who resurrected from the dead, right? And so he starts trying to evangelize with these guys. And you know what happened? Look at verse 19. And, uh, and so they, they took him, some of these philosophers took him and brought him to the Areopagus and said, we want to learn about this new teaching you're presenting. And so with Paul going out and just kind of laying groundwork, trying to set the soil for the people in the city of Athens, do you know what he ran into? People of peace people of peace. He ran into people who were 
kind of low-hanging fruit, semi-interested to at least hear his message. And, uh, and so they pull him in, and he finds just ears willing to hear. And so he walks into the Areopagus, and that's where they're ready to hear his message. But remember, what's the background of this city? Idol worship. And so when I lived in, uh, this is kind of lost on us a little bit because we live in such a uh, naturalistic society uh, to where really if you believe in God at all, it's this invisible God. And so you don't see a lot of this idolatry, this, what this really looks like in real life, unless you go to a different context. Um, but when I was in Angleton, uh, which is a city south of Houston, there was a donut shop in the, in the town that was run by a really sweet family. And I would go there and get donuts for Sunday mornings for our students sometimes. And, or if we had a D-Now, I'd go get a big order from them for, for the D-Now Sunday morning and whatnot. And so they knew me, and they, you know, we were all real friendly with one another. But on the counter of this donut shop was, I can't remember if it was Hindu or Buddhist, but there was a, a god sitting on the counter. And they would, have, they would present food to it every day, uh, and so I'd walk in, and I was fascinated every time. I was fascinated with this, with this little idol that was on the counter, and I would buy my donuts right next to it, and this one had donuts that morning too, I guess, you know? And, uh, and every time, I was like, the family was real friendly, and I enjoyed being in there. I was always really curious about it. But you know what's interesting? I, I kind of always thought about this, like, what kind of God needs fed? Like, like I, there was a, I never really attacked him on it. I didn't want to be, like, rude. Uh, but I just, I was kind of something that was always in my mind of like, why would you, why would you want a God who needs you to bring it food? But nonetheless, it was really interesting to see it played out in real life in front of me. Because if you really think about it, the idea of having a physical thing that you can see and that you can worship that represents a bigger God behind it makes a lot of sense, Right? Because often for us, we're like, well, we follow Jesus, we want to live for Jesus, we want to believe in God, but in re- if we're really honest, you're like, I can't see him. Maybe he's there, maybe he's not. But if you have a physical thing that's here and like, this is our God, this represents my God, I can worship to this God, I can pray to this thing because I can see it, right? That's the culture of Athens. And so Paul sees this city filled with worshipers who worship these things that have been made with gold and with wood and with ivory. And they're laid out in front of them in these little nooks, you know, throughout the city. And Paul sees this and like, I can work with this. That's what he says. He's like, I can speak into this culture. And so let's look what he says here in verse 22. He stands in the middle of this Areopagus. It's this city center. And he says, people of Athens... I see that you guys are extremely religious in every way. Because I was passing through the city, and I was just observing the objects of your worship. And I even found another area. And along with all of your idols, I found an empty spot that gives room for you to worship even the God that you don't know yet. It says this. You've got a, a spot that says, to an unknown God. Therefore... What you have already all been worshiping in ignorance, you don't know about him yet. I have come to proclaim him to you who this unknown God is. 
See verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, he is the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in shrines made by hands, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath in all things. From one man, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. So you know what Paul just told them? He's like, in the middle of all of these idols that you guys have made, these little gods that you worship, Zeus and Hades and whatever else, you have a spot here that says to a God that we don't know yet, and I'm coming to proclaim him to you, but let me tell you something about this God. He is the living one. He's the living God. I'm going to tell you about the living God, the one who can't be contained within one of these little idols. The one who is so big that a little gold idol can't represent him. The one who is so great that he's actually the one who created all things. Therefore, since he's created all things, he doesn't need you to make one thing to represent him because all things represent him. All things do. He's saying like this, like, listen, also, look at verse 25, thinking about that, the people in the donut shop, because what do you do with these idols? You come and you bring them offerings. You come and bring them food. You come and pour out wine in front of them, you know, those kind of things. But look at verse 25. He says, I'm telling you about the God who is not served by human hands as though he needs anything. I'm telling you about the living God who has no need for you to bring him dinner. That's who I'm talking about here. And so Paul looks into this culture, and he's like, listen, there is a God out there who, who has a glory, who has power far and above you could believe, and has authority far above any of these little gods that you guys have created uh, in order to represent them. Right? He doesn't need you for anything. I'm telling you about the God that doesn't need you. but he's so powerful that you probably want to get into him. That's what he's getting at here. He's like, that's the kind of God you need. The kind of God that you need is not one that needs to be served by you, but a God who's bigger than you. That's what he's getting at. You need to know the living God. And you see what's interesting about this is like Paul's really speaking into their culture, right? See, this is a different kind of message than what you would hear typically. Like, hey, guys, listen, God loves you. God loves you, and he died for you. Like, no, 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 no. He's like, to the Athenians, you guys worship a lot of gods that you created. You need to know there's a God out there that you can't create, and that's the one you need to know, right? But here's the good thing about this. Here's the beauty in Paul's message, because he doesn't stop there. Because if you just stop there, then you just have a God with a lot of power. And if you really think about it, just a God with a lot of power is not really one that you totally want to love. You need something else to pair with that. Because the main thing that describes God, the main characteristic for God is not power, but love. And so look, what, look where he turns next. In verse 27, he did this, meaning created all things, so that they might seek God and they might perhaps reach out and find him though he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, we are, for we are also his offspring. 
Since we are God's offspring then, we shouldn't think of the divine nature as something like gold or silver or ivory or wood or anything like that. It's like like some kind of image that we could fashion. Therefore, having overlooked times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. For he has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And here's where he just went with that. He said, all of you guys need to know the living God. You need to know a God who is bigger than you. But he's not just unbridled power. But he's also the God who's bigger than you and created all things in order that you might come to know him. See, everything in him is about reaching out to draw us in, into a relationship with him. And that's where Paul goes with his message. And then he turns and says, here's how you get in. Here's how you turn. Here's how you find that God. Here's how you reach out. You repent of the ways in which you have turned away from him. That's what he says. Repent. Because he set a day in which he's going to judge the world. And he's proved that he's going to do it. By raising the man, the example, Jesus, up from the dead. Jesus is proof that God is real and that he's coming. And so that's, what, that's his message here. And so there's the, Paul's message in a nutshell is, Athenians, I want you to know the living God. I want you to know the living God. To enter into a life-giving, life-altering relationship with him. And as we think about our ones, as we've been walking through this evangelism series, as you think about this, this, this person, these people that you love in your own life, you know that need to know Jesus, just as this is Paul's goal, this is also our goal. Like our goal in trying to share the gospel or trying to pull people into a relationship with Jesus is not simply to get a win or not simply to please God, like, hey, then I'm, God's going to love me more if I do this thing. No. What is it? It's to help our one come to know the living God just as we have. That's the point. It's a, it's a motivation from love. It's like we've come to know the living God through Jesus Christ, His Son, and we want others to be able to be drawn into that same kind of a relationship as well. And that's what Paul is doing here. And so here's where I want to go with this next, because that was Paul's message. But the second thing I want you to see here is his method, his method. You see, what happens in this text is called contextualization. We brought that up last week. And what contextualization means is where you adapt your message and your method to meet the need of the people that you're trying to reach with the gospel. That's the point. You're adapting your message and the method to get at where the other person is and to get to reach them in the most helpful manner. And so what Paul does here is he speaks into where the culture of their city is. He's like, I'm going to talk about idols and how God doesn't need an idol, how God is the living God because you live in the middle of a city filled with fake gods. And so I can easily speak into that and reach you in that manner, right? Well, in the same way that Paul read the culture of Athens and was able to speak into the lives of the people in Athens at that time, so too can you and I 
read are one to be able to figure out how can I best reach or speak into their life in a way that hits them with the most impact in the most helpful manner possible. That's what we've been doing. So we've been talking about our five thresholds of, of a, someone's spiritual journey towards Christ. And again, as we said, is, if, there's no guarantee that once someone reaches one threshold, they'll get to the next one. But as we've talked last week, we were talking about how do you contextualize your message and your method to reach a person in the most effective or most helpful way. And so we saw last week on building trust with someone, right? Because if you don't trust a person, you're never going to hear their message, right? So I remember when my dad's house burned down a couple years ago, uh, 2018, right? Uh, And at that time, you got someone who's coming with a message with something that may be helpful. We didn't trust them for a second. So when your house burns down, uh, there are people who get on uh, fire scanners. They have them in their offices, and they just wait and listen for there to be a problem so they can show up with their product, Blackman Mooring. And, uh, and so uh, you have Blackman Mooring trucks and all these other restoration trucks, and your, fire is, your house is still on fire, and you have these guys showing up on your property s- still burning, right? And after a while, we're like, we don't care about you guys. We don't want you. So I spray-painted a big piece of plywood. It's like, no soliciting, don't come here, we're not interested, you know, and then like, unless we're buds, you know. And, uh, uh, but the thing is, is, like, you can have a good message. You can have something that could be helpful, but if the person doesn't trust you, doesn't care about you, then it doesn't matter. It's going to fall on deaf ears, right? And so we talked last week, very high level, <laughs> very high level. We didn't get into weeds at all, but about building trust with your one. Because you're going to listen to a message from someone that you trust, right? And so this week, the, I want to go to the second one. And I don't know that we're going to have a sermon on each one of them. But this week, we're going to go to the second one. Because I think it's also really helpful. And talking about how do you lead a person to the threshold of becoming curious about Jesus? Curious about faith, right? So the first threshold was trusting a Christian. The second threshold is becoming curious about Jesus, Right? And here's the other ones, just in case you forgot them. The third one is becoming open to change in your own life. The fourth one is seeking truth, and the fifth one is choosing to follow. But, but the second one is what I want to talk about today, is how do, you, how do you generate curiosity? How do you encourage curiosity in a person? How do you adapt your method to be able to bring that about within a person? Now, here's the thing. Curiosity, arousing curiosity, is all about asking good questions, It's all about asking good questions and encouraging more questions. See, your job here is not to have an answer for everything. Your job, like once you have a, you're one, and you know, man, that we trust each other, and we help each other with our fences and everything else. Like it's, we got a good relationship, and I want to move them to how do, how can I get them to be interested in, in faith, in the Jesus that I follow? And the point here is not, again, to know the answer to everything. The point here is to point your friend to the most intriguing person who's ever lived. That's the point. To ask good questions and to allow them space to ask good questions that draw them to seek answers or to be interested at least in Jesus, the most interesting man ever. You see, Often, when we're at talking, if you do have spiritual conversations with people outside of a church context, 
often when a question is asked, a theological question in any sense, we panic a little bit because we think that we have to have the most perfect, theologically robust answer possible with which to answer. Because if we don't get it correct, then this person's going to, they're going to, it's totally going to fail and they're going to go to hell forever. And that's the end of the story, right? That's kind of how we think along with those lines, like whenever we get a question from someone that has anything to do with Jesus. But I want you to see Jesus, the way of Jesus here. Because when Jesus gets asked questions, you know what he does? He asks questions back. He's like, let's talk about it. Like, let's discuss this. Let's think, right? Because this is just in Matthew. And I had to hand select a few because there are there are so, 100, 200 questions that Jesus asks. Uh, and and so in Matthew, like when, when he's talking, you know what he's doing? He's trying to bring about curiosity. In Matthew chapter 5, he's like, if you only love the people who love you, like what, what good is that? How does that show anything good to anyone? Don't, don't outsiders, don't Gentiles love only those who love them? He's just asking questions. Another one. And in chapter 6, verse 27, he's like, listen, can you add anything to your life if, if you worry a lot more? He's just asking questions. Another one, 1248. Someone comes up and they're like, hey, your mom and your dad are here, or your mom and your brothers are here, and they want to find you. And he goes, who are my mother and my brothers? It's a great question. Another one. He turns to his disciples in chapter 16, and he's like, who do the people say that I am? See, Jesus isn't really wanting to know. He doesn't, like, he's not, he's not really wondering, what do these outsiders think of me? What is he trying to do? He's trying to get his disciples to be thinking, to assess who do they say that he am, what's their reaction to him, and what's my reaction to him? That's what he's getting at, right? And then here's another one. In chapter 19, why do you ask me about what is good? What's your nat- what, what are you trying to get at? What's the nature of good? What's, what's the purpose of your question? Another one. In 20, 21, James and John's mom comes up to him, and he's like, hey, what do you want? He wants to know what she's trying to get at. Another one, 2317, when there's misplaced, misplaced priorities, and he's like, listen, which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And he's getting at, where are your priorities? What do you think is most important? And so the Jesus, like asking good questions, allowing space for people to be able to ask a question, to be curious about something, and to be able to think through it and not give all the answers is not bad. It's actually the way of Jesus. That's what he does here. So, so you and I, if we want to follow Jesus and we want to encourage curiosity in our one, then we want to learn how to be good question askers as well, Right? We don't want need to be the best question answerers there are. We don't need a PhD from Southwestern or anything like that. We just need to know, well, this is the way Jesus does it. I guess I can ask questions too and just let there be wonder in the world, right? So here's an example. Here's an example of other questions you can ask. What else is going on in your life? Have stuff at home and just get things rolling. Just to engage in the conversation, Right? But then if there's a problem, how often is there a problem that you're engaged with? Like, how often does someone come up to you as you're talking, your friend or someone, your neighbor, and it's a complaint or something negative happening? Here's another good question. Do you think maybe God might be trying to get your attention? Man, is question. You're introducing spiritual things. 
They're already talking about a problem that they've got. Could God be getting their attention? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Probably because he wants all people's attention, you know? And so we want to become askers of good questions just like Jesus in order just to arouse curiosity in things of faith, in order to arouse curiosity in Jesus, right? Now, as we think about this, you might be intimidated as well by this. That's fine. But maybe a good start for all of us is for us to become curious about Jesus again, too. Like, maybe a good start for us. Like, if you're like, man, I would love to be able to ask questions like Jesus. I would love to be able to introduce spiritual things in conversations. But I don't know. Like, I don't know how to do that. And I don't even know if I'm that interested. And, like, maybe a good start for us is to become intrigued by Jesus as well. See, here's the thing. You and I, if most of us in this room, not all of us, but most of us in this room follow Jesus, but after a while, sometimes things can become routine to where you just get in the routine of I'm going to church, I'm going to my D group if you're in one, I go to my life group, uh, I go to serve with the kids, or I go to serve uh, in this ministry, or I go to be there early for this, and I'm going to go to this meeting uh, to be at that. And, uh, and then we got this event that we're going to be at, and, uh, and then we have the, you know, you just, you just get in the routine of doing things for God, and you think, yeah, things are going well because I'm doing a lot, but if you really stop and assess, you might think, like, sometimes I turn into a Martha over a Mary, right? You know that story where Jesus is with two of his disciples, two girls, uh, Martha and Mary, their sisters, and... Martha is trying to do all this stuff around the house, trying to serve Jesus, to make things perfect, to make things ready for Him, to have everything be nice, to attend all the... So she's doing all the ministry stuff. She's serving. She's preparing. She's welcoming. She's doing all these things. And what is Mary doing? She's sitting at the feet of Jesus saying, I'm not going to miss it. He's here in our presence, and I'm not going to miss it. And how often do you and I get in the same rut as Martha? saying, I'm just doing all these things for God, and this is a good thing. And we just sometimes, if we look up and we're like, man, I don't know that I've actually really connected or heard from Jesus in the last three months or six months. And when you get in that position, then you can kind of feel distant. And when you're, when you're told, you want to encourage curiosity in others, and then you can, if you're really honest, you're like, I don't even know, I don't even know if I have it myself, Right? And so maybe the best place for you to begin to be able to share your faith and arouse curiosity in your one is for you to get a restart in your own relationship with Jesus. To this week say, you know what, I've got all these ministry things that I was planning on doing this week, but what I need to do before any of them is just take a breath and sit down. And instead of just reading my Bible reading plan in order to check the box off so my D group knows that I've read this week, you say, you know what, if I don't get it all done, so be it. I'm going to sit down for this moment for the purpose of simply hearing from Jesus, right? Because once you hear from Him, well, then you have something to tell, right? Then you have something to share. Then you have something to be curious about because you're like, you know, I read, you know, in my Bible reading plan, I read all of John over the last two weeks, and I don't remember any of it, Right? But if you stop and you're like, but I read three verses, and you know what I heard? God told me to just sit down and hear from Him and stop doing all the ministry that I'm trying to do to please Him. 
And when you hear that, that is a message of freedom from God. And you know what your friend needs to hear? There's a living God who calls you to a, to a, a light burden. What does he say? Remember? He says, come on, take my yoke upon me. My burden is light. He says, he doesn't need you to do all this stuff to earn his love. He just wants you to stop and sit down and listen to him, right? That's the living God. That's a message you can tell. That's how you arouse curiosity in someone. See, often when we think about our, our neighbors, we, we go towards where they're dealing with sin, right? And, and this is a very common thing. You're like, man, I want to engage my friend. She's in this kind of relationship that's really bad. I see it from afar, and it's not a good thing. Or, or they're engaging in this kind of uh, activity that I know is not really, really good for them, and I want to be able to speak into their life and pull them out of that because I know that God doesn't want them to live there. But maybe instead of trying to say, listen, the way you're living is this way, and God wants you to live this way, maybe the better pathway, the third way, is for you to just point them to say, hey, why don't you, what do you think about Jesus? And just point to arousing curiosity in him, not trying to fix their sin right now. Jesus does that later. But just saying, why don't you become interested in the man? And so, I don't know. I think this is pretty cool because what you see in this passage in Acts is Paul doing that very thing of reading the people, reading where his people, his target people group are at, and saying, I'm going to speak into their life in this moment in a way that really draws them in. Because if you notice, his, his method is completely different than Peter's in Acts chapter 2. Because here, he's like, listen, you need to know the living God. In Acts chapter 2, he's turned to a bunch of Jews and he says, you guys crucified Jesus. <laughs> it's totally different. And you and I need to, can do this exact same thing with our people. You say, I've got a friend who trusts me, but I want to learn how to get to the next step. And the next step is simply, how do you try to get them to become curious about the God that you follow. That's the step. Ask good questions. Ask good questions in that. But here's one pitfall, and then we'll be done. One pitfall. Because sometimes, if you do seek success, if you do have a friend who does express curiosity in some kind of spiritual question. It could be something related to Jesus. It could be something related to church. It could be something related to righteous living. I don't know what it is. But if you see one little cracked door, then the temptation is to barge in guns blazing with every bit of information we've got. And I, I heard a, a, there was a good quote actually in the book I was talking about last week. It's a really good quote of like, you want to be careful and be still being sensitive. You're sensitive to where they're at, for how to reach them, but you also want to be sensitive with how much information to give them because you don't want to be the one who tries to pour an entire gallon worth of material in when they're only holding a Dixie cup worth of curiosity, right? You don't want to douse it out. You want to give, be sensitive to where they're at and give them the information, space that they're at now, but give them room to be able to grow. And so in this, how, what do you do? What do you do? Here's how we're going to end it. I want you to do two things. You can either pray one of two ways. So one is maybe what you need to do is pray that God would increase your curiosity, your intrigue, your interest in Jesus the man this week. Maybe that's what you need to pray for. 
that you need to grow in your own relationship with Him and connecting with Him again to where you actually have something, some kind of relationship that you're building off of in order to draw other people into a relationship with Him. So maybe that's what you need to pray for, is your own intrigue in Jesus and learning more about Him. But the second way for you to pray is for your one that they might become interested in Jesus and that you would be wise on how to ask good questions to them, to draw out a spiritual theme. And so as the band comes up, I want you to pray for that. So I'm going to pray first, and then as the band plays softly in just a second, I want you to pray for one of those two things. Your own interest, intrigue in Jesus, and this is for Christians and non-Christians alike, or for your one, that they would become interested and that you would be wise in discerning how do I ask good questions to arouse curiosity in the man I follow. And so, Father, we come before you today. And we thank you for your word and the great example that we have from Paul about how to contextualize our message, contextualize our method in order to best reach the people that you have put into our spheres. And so we thank you for the message of of knowing the living God and that you're present, that you're real, that you're there, and that you call us into this kind of relationship with you. And so I pray that we would lean into that, of not just knowing you in order to get out of heaven and then to go do all this ministry stuff to make you happy, but that we would lean into knowing you in order to truly know you, and that we would seek to follow Jesus, to learn more about Jesus, to be continually interested in Jesus, to have favorite stories about him. And based out of that base or that foundation then, that we would be able to go and help other people, help our friends come to know the living God in the same way that we have. And so we thank you for the hope of the gospel. And we pray that we'd, we'd seek to extend it to our friends. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so like I said, I want to give you a moment to pray for one of those two things on your own. Your own intrigue, your own curiosity about Jesus, or for your friends. And so while the band plays just for a moment, you respond.